Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello. This is Joshua Bourne, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at RCLCO Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking with Dan Biederman, President of Biederman Redevelopment Ventures, Bryan Park Corporation, and 34th Street Partner- uh, Partnership. Dan is a legend in the real estate and development world, especially in New York City, and someone whose name I heard constantly when working in the architecture and urban planning industry. As Bryan Park's restoration is considered the case study for those looking to make change at the community level. Dan began his career creating real estate value in New York, where he founded the Bryan Park Corporation, the nation's most successful park privatization effort in 1980. He then set up the country's largest complex of business improvement districts, including the Grand Central Partnership in 1985 and 34th Street Partnership in 1989. During his career, and through these and other entities, he's revived or built 12 privately funded and managed urban parks and turned around five troubled neighborhoods, eliminating thousands of annual crimes and creating directly 2,500 jobs and over 10 billion in real estate value. His consulting firm, Biederman Redevelopment Ventures, has represented many of the nation's largest office, retail, residential developers and owners on public space work, in 30 states and nine countries. Among the professional sports franchises that he's helped in placemaking include three NFL teams, the Jets, Packers, and Falcons, the San Francisco Giants with their Mission Rock project. And he's also a graduate of Princeton's Woodrow Wilson School of Public Affairs, magna cum laude, of course, from 1975, and also from the Harvard Business School with distinction in 1977. Not too shabby, Dan. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the nice introduction. Yeah, we're excited to have you. As I mentioned, I think you're a legend and your reputation certainly precedes us. I think many of our folks or most of the folks who are, know RCLCO probably know your story as well as we follow the urban planning and development realm. But Brian Park's story in particular, you're so intertwined. Is there a five to 10 minute version of that that you could start with and share with our audience about your success? I know you could talk about it for hours, but let's set the stage. Can you give a quick overview of kind of your background and, and the Brian Park opportunity in particular? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Josh. I was a systems consultant in New York City for two and a half years working with New York City Budget on Finance. A job came to my attention that was a little offbeat for me. Fix Brian Park. The Rockefellers want it done and they don't know how to do it. So I got that job at a very young age, figured out a plan to privatize the park and occupy it with activities that would bring people in. So the drug markets and muggers and killers who were there would disappear. But the bad thing for my career was it took nine years to get that approved by New York City agencies of various kinds. So during that interim period, I set up those other BIDs just because I wanted more jobs and and more compensation. But the Bryant Park thing gradually became a success in the late 80s. And we were then lucky enough to coincide with terrific work on anti-crime in New York City by Bill Bratton in the early 90s. 
And all of a sudden, we had a midtown that was vibrant again and attractive. The techniques were things we've rolled out, now 35 states actually, in public spaces of various kinds, mixed-use developments, little parks, downtown parks of greater size than that, and outside, as you mentioned, football and baseball stadia. And it involves various components. First, it's always good to have a lot of private sector control because uh, decisions will be made on the merits and more quickly. That's what we did at Bryant Park. The city has never asked for a dollar, which helps them. We have raised a budget that is now $25 million annually for all the programming you see in Bryant Park and have now duplicated that in places that some of your listeners may have heard of. Uh, Clyde Warren Park in Dallas, Levy Park in Houston, LaBauer Park in Greensboro. We're now running all the activities on top of Salesforce Transit Center in San Francisco and currently working with 13 other entities that have this kind of job for us in, I think, 10 states. Those 13 are in Missouri, Nevada, Florida, Texas, and uh, New Jersey, among others. So that's the uh, kind of strange career. My mother, before she died, I don't think fully understood what I did for a living because it is a niche product and there are very few other people in the field, but it's been an interesting path to blaze for the people who want to see better downtown activity, less crime, and increased real estate value. Well, and trailblazer is certainly a great word to use, and I don't know if any parents really understand what their children do. So the good news is you're still doing it however many years later. And I wonder if some of that was, you know, values instilled in you by your mother, for instance, or your family. I know you've used the term reclaim neighborhoods a lot, which I really appreciate with the work you do. What is at the core of your desire to reclaim neighborhoods, if you called it? What kind of drove you down this path? Interesting. When I started at Bryant, a couple of answers. By the way, my father's office was right across from Bryant Park, and he told me in 1977 never to go over there. Too dangerous. And he was an inspiration in other ways I'll talk about. But what I realized, having gone to business school, models are very important. So I said, I really need some models. So I looked at Disney, Rouse, and Rockefeller Center and extracted from each of them things that they were doing right. Rouse's festival marketplaces, the various Disney facilities, and Rock Center was doing a lot of the right things. A lot of people told me when I started working on Bryant, though, you're not going to be able to have a success there because your neighborhood is eight blocks off. Rock Center is in a nice neighborhood. You're in a terrible neighborhood. 42nd Street, not known to anybody under the age of 50, was truly awful in the 70s and 80s. Purse snatchings, chain snatchings, stabbings, people beating people up on the sidewalks. There was much discussion of closing Bryant Park permanently from the community board and others. So models were important. My father's role was he used to do an interesting thing. He, We'd be standing on a movie line and he'd be watching the manager of the movie theater. This is just one example. And he'd lean over to me and say, see that guy there? He's doing just what a manager should do. He noted something that wasn't right and he went over and took care of it. And he's out there with his customers. And that's the kind of thing we should do. He made a point and never you'd see anybody like that of finding the boss and telling him how great an employee he had. It's hands-on management. Some of the techniques are special to parks and plazas that belong to mixed-use developers like programming and earned income. We don't, or last thing I'll say at this point, we don't have the conventional model 
for Parks Conservancy. Central Park, which is, they're our buddies, but they have a totally different business model. All their money comes from the city and from philanthropy, almost $100 million. We don't take a dollar from either of those sources. All our money is from earned income. And that frees you to run your facilities the way you'd like to run them. It's very much a private sector approach. It's uh, super interesting and unique to hear how different you are than many of the other sort of groups out there. And we can come back to kind of that earned income and privatization effort. But you mentioned a few things, obviously, some of the lessons learned maybe from your father. I mean, what was a value you saw in yourself growing up that you think, you know, ended up continuing through your career? And maybe that's a good segue to tell us a little bit about your journey even prior to Bryant Park and where how you got to that stage. Interesting. Well, I, my father came in on in this issue too. And I'm a junior. He said, what do you think you're going to do when you get out of college? And I said, well, I've decided already, Dad, that I don't want to work in the private sector or the public sector. So he said, well, that's a problem because those are the two sectors we have. So what the hell are you going to do? I said, I'd like to work in between them. I think I've already figured out that's where my career should be, working on public things, but not in public sector entities, working as if I was in the private sector, setting up entities that allow me to work that way, but working only on public things. I'm not such a consumer goods person. I'm a public space and public service person. This was really intentional. I, by age 21, I knew what I wanted to do. Prior to that, some of my protégés asked me, what do you think is unusual about you, if anything? And I said, I only have two strengths. I'm not smarter than everybody else. I have discipline and intellectual curiosity. And they know about intellectual curiosity because I'll bring in something to our weekly staff meeting that seems to have nothing to do with Bryant Park. They'll look at me curiously and I'll say, you can learn a lot from this play or this advertising jingle or this graphic depiction in Phoenix. I just think I'm more intellectually curious than other people. And going back to when I was 16, I went on a trip around the country where they took a bunch of teenagers to the national parks in station wagons. And all the rest of the kids on the trip were kind of glued on comic books or whatever they were reading at that time. There was no internet. And I had a roadmap that I'd get at each time we got into a new state. And I'd stare at it and look at the towns we were passing. And one of the counselors on the trip said, you're the only one who cares about what's going on outside the window here. That's really interesting. And I said, I guess, you know, I'm just fascinated that Grand Forks is, I never thought I'd be in this town and here I am. So I'm curious what Grand Forks is like. So that's probably my only virtue. And I've retained that. And I have two kids who are, thanks to my wife, who are very intellectually curious. It's a great trait, and it's amazing to see how sort of those early initiatives or early endeavors you had have sort of continued through to what you're doing now. It's amazing that carry that motif or that thread through your entire life, which is pretty incredible. You said some other things in there that resonates with us as well as, you know, RCLCO, we work with a lot of both public and private sector clients. I think we always joke that it's far easier to get things done when somebody at the public sector has previously worked from the private world, right? They know how to actually move the needle and, and get things over the hump. And kind of understanding at a young age that you wanted to sit at that intersection of public-private is really interesting. I'm curious to learn a little bit more what you've taken away from that privatization process. How have you gone about getting various entities that all have different interests, but I guess the point is they have a similar goal with something like a Bryant Park. How is getting those various entities and different private sector clients on board to do something like this as a challenge to you? It was not easy, Josh, at the beginning. The 
money for Bryant Park to get done started mainly from foundations other than the Rockefellers. The real estate community didn't believe this could ever happen and was also fed up that they were paying high taxes to the city and the city wasn't taking care of it. So Larry Silverstein, for one, gave me a tiny grant for one of his buildings and I think was a skeptic, as was Seymour Durst, who was a buddy of mine and pointed to his corner where he's put the Bank of America Tower subsequently, his descendants, and said, if you can fix Bryant Park, I'll develop that corner. But they weren't the first money in. But what the real estate community was very good for is various techniques. Uh, example, we run a fabulous public restroom, which is often voted the best public restroom in the United States. It's in Bryant Park. Flowers everywhere, continual cleaning, recessed lighting, coffered ceilings, artwork on the walls, classical music playing. And the challenge there, here's where the private sector's techniques come in. I frequently say, when I think we're starting to decline a little bit, I say, you need to get up from your desk and go to the Peninsula Hotel and the Regency, go into their restroom in the lobby and see what it looks like, and then come back here and see what we're missing. I often say hotel managers, for all their crabbiness, because they don't like to be members of BIDs generally, because it takes money off their bottom line. But I say they you can learn a lot from them. They look at their lobby in a different way than governments look at their lobby. That's an example of the kind of thing you can learn from the private sector. Yeah, that's incredible. I love hearing sort of how you're drawing inspiration. It ties back to your intellectual curiosity, right? That you can walk into something that's maybe on the other side of the spectrum of what you're doing and feel like there's something you can draw and take away from it. I also appreciate sort of all the living legends, historical legends, I should say, that, that you've worked with throughout New York. And, and kind of in our prep, you mentioned to be sure to bring up, I think it's Enid Hop who made a donation, I believe, to Brian Park. And there was a good story tied to that. Do you mind sharing? Well, of course, Mrs. Astor was the inspiration for this project. Actually, Enid Hop's friend, Mrs. Astor was legendary donor in New York and had inherited a lot of the money from the Astor family, which went back 150 years and was walking towards the library in 1979 and was accosted by a drug seller who ostensibly was trying to sell her marijuana. And she stomped into the library. David Rockefeller was at the meeting. This is how I got this job. She started yelling at him saying, there are some ruffians outside. And can you imagine they tried to sell me marijuana? Look at me. Do you, I look like she was about 80 at the time. And she's calling David Rockefeller a young man. He was probably 72. And she said, do I look like somebody who would ever buy marijuana? This is, we need to get rid of these brigands outside. So that's how they decided the Rockefellers have a good way of doing philanthropy, or at least did at that time, which is not run things themselves, but find somebody they trust and put them in charge and learn from them. So that was Mrs. Astor. And then Mrs. Hout was also very charitable. If money was from the Annenberg public magazine fortune and the like. We were going to raise $3 million for park improvements. Andrew High School was my chairman, the chairman of Time Inc., and a legendary figure himself. And he said, we're going to go up to Mrs. Haupt and ask her for money, because I had told him. I said, do you know her? He said, yes, yes. And I said, let's go up there. And he said, how much do you need? I said, 350000 for a lighting scheme that'll make the park sing at night and make it safe. So we go up there. Andrew spoke seven languages. We started in that meeting with plants because she had been a big donor of the botanical garden in New York. Big horticultural expert, if I recall, right? Yeah, she, and she had a lot of opinions about horticulture. So when he raised that initially, 
Mrs. Hep said, no, I'm not going to give you money for horticulture because I know Lyndon Miller is advising you and she's very good, but she's a spiller. So Andrew didn't know everything about horticulture. He said, what's a spiller? And she said, she spills her plants outside the borders of the gardens. And I don't like that style at all. So no to that. So she said, you got anything else? So I had told him 350 for lighting. So I think he sensed that she was going to give us something. So he said, well, we have this lighting need. What about that? And she said, that sounds better. She said, how much? And Andrew, I guess, took courage and said, well, maybe a million dollars would do it. She said, all right, well, just tell my guy where to write the check on Monday and I'm in. So sometimes you get very lucky. <laughs> Thank God our garden designer was a spiller because then we ended up with three times as much money. So it, it was amazing. These were all people I never thought I'd meet when I was a kid, Andrew High School, I'd read about so much. He was a wonderful chairman and he he worried about Bryant Park all the time, even though he was chairman of the library and had been until our first year of Bryant Park, chairman of Time Inc. And he was responsible for many things, including People Magazine. He used to tell me that one day I asked him, are you working on something? He looked at me like I had two heads and said, do you understand? I don't do any work. I'm chairman of the company. I never work. He said, one exception though, People Magazine. I got that started by, I had the idea and I went to people's offices, stuck my head in and said, how are you doing on my People Magazine idea? And they'd always tell me nothing doing. He said, I forced that. That was the maintenance of Time Inc. That was the most successful publication when the others were failing. So he was a great guy to learn from. Yeah. I mean, I, we could probably sit here all day to hear more of your stories and the roster of names that you worked with and important people. And I think that's an interesting question, too. I mean, you've obviously also crafted a reputation for yourself and your burnout. And so I imagine you're getting calls from a lot of big name individuals and from a lot of different folks and different projects. How do you prioritize whom to work with and which projects to take on and really where to focus your efforts, given there's only so much time in the day? Well, it's interesting. We get a lot of calls. I'm a polite person. So I don't like getting calls where they say, can we do the current term is peer review where they have another best practices used to be uh, 10, 20 years ago, people would say, I know you did Brian Park, I'd like to come pick your brain. And when I had the consulting firm, I said, I'd much rather to myself, I'd much rather consult for this person rather than empty all my mind for two hours when they come to see me. So it was delicate to transfer those over to consulting clients. It just happened, a guy from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the finance director, brilliant guy, started that way with best practices. And I said, no, you know, what you really need is my consulting firm to come in and tell you how to do this. So we just launched there. It's the 35th state we've worked in. I can kind of sense now, not only whether there will be money for consulting from the person who's approaching, but also, are they going to listen to us? We've had clients who pay us a fair amount of money and then ignore our advice. It's rare, but it happens. So I can kind of tell in the earliest conversations whether they're going to be listeners or not. Yeah, I appreciate that you're the consummate salesman still, even while you're doing good, right? So recognize, you know, it's it's great to to provide and give back, but at the same time, can make a living doing consulting work as well and still improve areas. That's that's sort of a win-win for everybody. So we've obviously worked, as you said, 35 states, a lot of projects. Is there a dream neighborhood or park or public space? that you haven't worked on that you would like to, or simply the project you'd most maybe still like to touch on in your career? Yes, I'm looking. Here's my list, Josh. I keep a list on my desk of the projects I don't think anybody can do except me. It's very egotistical, but... Maybe some of our viewers will hear this and you'll get a call out of it. Okay, so it's city by city. 
and some of them I've already gotten calls on, but most I haven't. Pershing Square in Los Angeles. It's been terrible for 40 years. A lot of bad ideas, never moves. And I get nibbles, but they never hire me to do it. The park blocks in Portland. You had asked one location and one project that I would have recommended for you. My very first suggestion would have been Pershing Square. And obviously I'm an engineer, but you, right off the top of my head, that's where I would have gone. <laughs> Amazing. It's really not hard. I could have it turned around in a year. Hart Plaza in Detroit. Hart Plaza would have been my number two. <laughs> <laughs> that's much too much space and really unattractive and uh, needs programming. And their climate would be okay for it. Civic Center Park in Denver. I'd like to take a crack at Town Square in New Haven, which is incredible history, but is very dangerous for everybody, the Yale students and everybody else. I've gotten some nibbles on that. Point Park in Pittsburgh, which is not terrible. It's just boring. It's where the Monongahela and the Allegheny meet and go uh, form the Ohio. And there are a few others. Embarcadero Plaza in San Francisco, which I'm trying to persuade the people at Boston Properties to let me take on. And there are a few others, but I see more every day. And then there's some things in Europe. I don't think this is sounds arrogant to say, but I don't think Piazza San Marco was run very well in Venice. And I think Trafalgar Square in London could be better. The French, by contrast, almost never make mistakes in public space. We're in Europe all the time. My wife's a fine arts lawyer and a brilliant one. And we're always around Paris and French cities. And I spend a lot of time in Luxembourg Garden watching. That's a terrific park. Best compliment for Brian is when people who are French come in and say, this is better than Luxembourg Garden, which may not be true, but it's nice that they say it to me. And I'm sure you're drawing inspiration continually from all those trips overseas. And you've mentioned your family a couple of times now. That was certainly something I took away in our prep. You're clearly a proud family man. You know, you've mentioned your wife, you have two kids. What do you think your family, your kids, your wife would say is your most endearing quality? And how do they feel about the work you're doing, the revitalization? I imagine proud, but, but anything that they've shared with you that's really resonated? Well, they're very good contributors. My wife is a fine arts lawyer and very analytical about everything. And she also has a, a great eye for well-done civic work. So she'll point things out to me. Just happened with regard to some flower thing I'm trying to remember. That's her influence. My son is a venture capitalist and my daughter is a filmmaker. Everybody in the family is an entrepreneur, which one day we set up and my wife started her own law firm. So um, I'm a social entrepreneur. She's a legal entrepreneur. And the other two started their own firms, my kids. So we had the realization one day, we said, why is our life particularly tense? Well, because nobody travels a path where somebody else takes care of everything. They're entrepreneurs and all the burden is on their backs. I've learned a lot about the movie business from my daughter and ton about private equity and venture capital for my son. So it's a stimulating but tense environment in our family. Well, and I was going to say, maybe the answer is that you've learned more from them at this stage, given what you just shared. But I was going to ask that there are traits or characteristics that come out in the work that you do and what you, you know, you've built your career on that you think you've passed down and instilled in your children. Well, intellectual curiosity is one. With regard to the way they start up things, I always say you're so much better if you have your, your own source of financing. Don't rely on others. My wife didn't want to sit around and see whether she'd be named partner in a law firm after eight years, which is the silly path they have. So she started her own firm in fine arts law. So I'd say on the entrepreneurial side and noticing things and being polite and being nice to people who are coming up from the bottom. I was in an, 
a Senate state senator's office in Albany working for 34th Street the other day. And there was a kid who was standing by and clearly was eager to be in the conversation. He was an intern from the Midwest somewhere. So I introduced myself and I said to him, you're going to be somebody big here someday, I can tell. And he was glowing. So I've always said, be nice to the people three levels below you. Pay attention to them. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I've always been taught the same thing, you know, uh, you say hello to the parking attendants, the guys cleaning the bathrooms all the way up to the bosses, right? They're, they're all people and it's good to know who they are. You can help make somebody's day. You know, that's a good example. I mean, what other advice or do you have other advice you'd give to somebody who's entering a leadership position for the first time coming up in the industry? I think, you know, you obviously care about the growing folks. And as you just explained in that scenario, thinking about the younger individuals and our next generations, but how do you keep your legacy and kind of what you're doing alive to that next stage? Uh, let's see. Well, you have to have a, an eye for talent, looking around, seeing who could help you. I try to also say to both, not only my kids, but other millennials who are in my office, don't get distracted by side issues. One of the reasons blue cities are so unsuccessful is they focus 90% of the time on the wrong thing. And they don't believe in supply and demand, particularly because most of the electeds are from political background as opposed to business background. My wife always says my father was a no-nonsense guy. He got a straight shooter, she called it. I always say you need to be like that. Pay attention to what really matters. And, you know, that's the characteristic of a lot of our private sector clients. And I also feel that the red states are doing a better job paying attention in that manner. Is that something that's that segmentation between blue and red states, which we hear about a lot more now? Is that something you've always seen in your career? Or is that one of these factors that's really changed a lot in the last decade? Or, or what else have you seen change a lot in the last 10 years that's really affected how you do business? Well, I'll give you an example. The deck park we did in Dallas, we were the programming consultant, the budgeting consultant, the staff selection consultant to a bunch of really important people in Dallas who wanted to bridge the gap between downtown Dallas and uptown Dallas by decking a highway and making a beautiful park there. It's called Clyde Warren Park. It's hugely successful. It's mentioned more often than Riverwalk in San Antonio now. If you ask somebody in Texas, you know, what's the best park in Texas, they more likely say Clyde Warren Park than the Riverwalk, which isn't a park, but it was so famous. That project cost $93 million all in. That's the deck and the park and was done fairly, there was some delay, but it was done pretty quickly. So we are on the lookout for deck park partners. There are a lot of them going in or proposed, but I've said to people in blue states, you know, I'd love to work on your thing, but I'm skeptical. They say, why? And I say, that project in Dallas, if it were in New York in exactly the same position, would have been not $93 million, but $750 million and would have been philosophized about for 10 years and probably never would have happened because $750 million would have been beyond the budget of anybody rational for a three-block stretch. So... I say the sad thing, I, I'm from a blue state, I grew up in New York, but I say the sad thing about the blue states is they're never going to get the goodies that the red states get because their method of thinking about things and ruling on things is not good. And therefore, the poor people or lower middle class people or middle class people in blue states are never going to be as well treated as the people just like them in Texas or Florida or Tennessee. Things will happen there. And the funny thing, though, is the Chinese somehow we've had one client in china we pay attention a lot i read the 
Communist Party paper every day, first thing in the morning. They're achieving a tremendous amount quickly. Every single day when I open the China Daily, they talk about a new rail line they've opened. So I'm trying to figure out why the blue states are so unsuccessful, the red states are so successful, and then the Communist Party is so successful. And I I haven't figured that out yet, but it's a fascinating intellectual conundrum. I was literally talking about the difficulty with creating high-speed rail here in California last night. We were working with a number of Japanese clients and had some folks in from Tokyo and just comparing the public transit and what they consider high-speed rail versus even our East Coast Accela that they kind of laugh at. And, and just the ballooning price tags, the fact that it doesn't go from our major cities to where it needs to, but rather 60 miles out. To, it's funny, they sort of said, well, we'll start with the easy thing and we'll figure out the hard part afterwards. I think I, it sounds like you and I would say, like, let's solve the big issue first and not worry so much about the little things, right? If it ever happens, it's going to come in on the ground floor of our transit center, Salesforce Transit Center in San Francisco, where we're running the park programs. So we'd love it to be successful, but I have a feeling I'll be retired by the time it does. And, you know, it's interesting, my talk about family influence. When I came back from our Chinese client one time, I slithered into bed. My wife didn't know I was home. It was the middle of the night. I got up in the morning. She sees me eating breakfast and she says, so what was China like? I'm dying to hear. I said, the Chinese are Texas in Mandarin. And she laughed. I said, they don't let anything get in their way. They think big. They get things done incredibly quickly. They're no nonsense. I don't quite get it because I, this is supposed to be a communist society, but they're very effective. I'm afraid of them. Well, you definitely feel, I feel like you're more informed than most folks I know. You know, I don't hear too frequently that folks are reading the uh, Communist China Party newspaper on a daily basis. So that's good to hear. It's a good thing. <laughs> when you mentioned high-speed rail and whether or not it can be a success, there are there any projects you've worked on that you feel haven't been successful or maybe the better way to put it were mistakes or things that you just you've learned from specifically difficult times? I divide that into two categories. Projects where the client stopped listening to us or did the wrong thing and therefore it's not as good as it could be. And then projects that just kind of petered out for other reasons. One of those is in Newark. We were very proud of our work in Military Park, the second oldest park in the United States. We did make it a lot better, but the surrounding property owners, except for Prudential and Public Service Electric and Gas, both of whom stuck with us throughout, kind of faded away. That happened a lot in Newark. A philanthropist named Ray Chambers uh, got it started, did very well, but some of the other property owners in Newark weren't too enlightened. So it, it kind of died, not died, but it flattened out for lack of funding. We've had clients where nothing changed, and I blame myself partly and partly them. But most of our projects have been successful because we don't stop until we get there. No, I think that makes sense. And, you know, certainly even the ones that haven't been, there's something to be learned from it, whether it's somebody not listening, something you could have done differently. You're clearly a big reader. You mentioned the news. I think you, you probably read a lot of debrief on your projects. I think in our prep, you mentioned that you average almost a book a week, something like 40 books a year last year. What are you reading these days? What type of books do you like to focus on? And, and what's on the docket for 2023 here? I'm pulling out, I keep a list because every year it's a discipline. I can't get to 50. It's just too hard. I'm not a speed reader. I'm very slow. So I read 40 every year. I insist that I get to 40. Somebody once told me, if you just say, I'm going to read 40 books a year, you will read 40 books a year. So looking at the most recent, there's a book about Jeff Bezos that's really quite interesting, how he writes and how he speaks called The Bezos Blueprint. I read that. That's the most recent nonprofit but I read a lot of fiction. I had never read Brideshead Revisited, and I just read that and found it fascinating. 
I finished a, a Trollope book, which was all about inheritance, which he's obsessed with in England. And now I'm some, reading something that's way outside my normal path. It's also fiction. Alice Munro, Lives of Girls and Women. It's about a girl growing up in Western Ontario. It's fascinating. So I don't only read things that seem natural for me. That's where this intellectual curiosity comes back in, right? You're walking into meetings and on Monday saying, you know, I read this in this book. Why are we not thinking about this as in, in terms of how it relates to our park, right? I mentioned reading whatever I'm reading each week, and I try to get my millennials to read books rather than be obsessed with silly text messages from their friends that don't say anything. A recent one that was really useful to learn more about my daughter's industry, I read Powerhouse by Miller, which is about the growth of CAA agency in LA, you know about. And Absolutely. I'm impressed that you've been able to keep the 40 going. And I think you probably do a fair bit of that, I would guess, on travel and our prep. You also mentioned that you've been to 49 states, I believe. So the big question is, where haven't you been? What's the one state that's missing? And why haven't you been there yet? It's Alaska. And I'm starting to get nervous because I'm a climber and a hiker. My wife is not. Sometimes I go with my son, we climb in the White Mountains. But I got to get to Alaska and I've been close. You know, I've, when I'm in Seattle doing work, I think about, you know, I should just hop on a plane, <laughs> go there and come back tomorrow and keep working. But that's the one I've been on all the others. I just found out my sister's been to 48, which surprised me. Be careful. She may pass you. I know that yeah. one is that. She's going to be happy with that. <laughs> Our time's running a little bit short here, but this has been great. I feel like we could continue to just talk and talk. I guess. Maybe the question to leave us on then is, what's next for Dan Biederman? What haven't you done that you still want to do that's out there? Well, I'm a big reader of Ayn Rand. I would love, given there's this red state, blue state divide, and I think the red states basically have the right idea, which is very unusual for a New Yorker. I would like to create something that is a more benign version of what she has in Atlas Shrugged, described endlessly as Galt's Gulch or something, where the producers do not worry about getting shut down by regulation and government and actually run things in a way that helps everybody achieve their best aims in life. So I'm looking for a place, if anybody's listening and says, this is the perfect place for your libertarian ideal, which is uh, essentially earned income, not very much in taxes, and not government bureaucracy. I'm looking for that. I'm looking right now at unincorporated areas, but I don't know much about them. So if I have enough time left in my career, I would like to do kind of an Ayn Rand location, which would be even more Texas than Texas and achieve like the Chinese do. Well, we'll put that out there. That's a request or a call to action for all of our viewers, our listeners here. And Dan, I want to thank you. I think this has been incredible. Your stories, your insights, the history are all wonderful and really kind of moved me and encouraged me to get out from behind the computer and, and go do things and to engage with our public parks and our private sectors. I'm not probably going to go head to Pershing Square, although I am heading to downtown after this, but I would love to continue to be part or involved with the many parks and areas you've touched on. Any last words or imparting wisdoms you'd like to leave for our audience uh, before we sign off here? Well, I just encourage 24-year-olds, if you're not sure what to do, but you have these kinds of interests, try to go into this field, be halfway between the public and the private sectors. Don't go to law school without having a purpose. Go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. Don't go to law school just to be a, a public figure or something. And think about this field because there are a lot of stimulating people in it all across the country. Appreciate that. And I'm sure your door is always open to talk to some of those younger yes. folks as well, given I how present you are. I can. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. 
Well, thank you, Dan. This has been incredible. We really appreciate you being, and you are, one of the best minds in real estate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice of you to say. Thanks, Josh. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.